I love preaching Trinity Sunday. It is one of the great truths of the faith. It is one of the great things that we get to contemplate. Every year I start um, kind of hopefully with a reassurance. I kind of feel like the angels that come up frequently in Scripture who every time they appear to somebody, they say, do not be afraid, right? I think as we approach the Trinity, we need to hear that regularly. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay God did not put this, you know, in the Bible, did not teach us this so that we might freak out about, you know, the intellectual side of our faith. He put that, that, the knowledge of who he is as Trinity into his word because he loves us and wants us to know him, right? We can think about maybe two problems or two um, ways that we approach the Trinity unhelpfully. The one I might describe as like a front pew problem, and well, in our church, the front pews are always empty, but, um, you know, it's the person who just loves theology and loves debate and loves um, diving into those deep things and never lets it get into the heart, right? Who says like, oh, I love talking about the Trinity because when I talk about the Trinity, I don't have to actually think about the messiness of life and living something out. And the Trinity is actually immensely practical. The Trinity is something that ought to affect the way that we live, ought to inform the way, not just that we believe, although certainly that, but also the way that we look at one another, the way that we think about what Jesus has done for us. And on the other hand, there are many of us who just say, I mean, the Trinity is probably for like some intellectual in an ivory tower somewhere, you know, theologians with a capital T, um, and I don't need that. And I want to just tell you this morning, reassure you that actually God has something beautiful to tell you in what he says about himself as Trinity. So, we're going to read this morning from John 17. Some of you may have things that, you know, you look in John 17, it's like, oh, I hope he's going to, you know, talk about this, and I'm probably not, because it's a very complicated, beautiful passage, um, and we're doing it in one week. We're going to focus specifically on what it means um, that God is Trinity and what that means for us. But I hope, um, if you have questions, um, you know, talk to Pastor Bill afterwards. (laughs) All right, let's stand. We're going to read from John 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 903. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think about who you are, we are swimming in waters too vast for us, depths of which we cannot fathom. We need you, Lord, to teach us about yourself to teach us things about yourself, and even more than that, Lord, to draw us near to you this morning, that we might know you personally as one of us knows another. Lord, we pray and we need you to make yourself known to us because we cannot go the other way. We can't find our way to you. We need you to come to us. Be with us this morning, Lord. Help us to see true and beautiful things in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus begins the prayer with the words, Father, the hour has come. This is one of the last things that Jesus does before his crucifixion. He prayed two prayers that last night, or four, one of them repeated three times. The synoptic gospels, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the prayer in Gethsemane, which I think shows us the honesty of Jesus, right? Sometimes it's almost difficult to read because you start to think, wait, did Jesus not, like, trust that God was doing what he was supposed to be doing? Did Jesus want to abandon the plan that he and the Father had? 
but it shows the honesty of saying, God, I know this is not going to be pleasant, and if it was possible, I would want it another way, but I know, and I trust your will. May your will be done. So in in Gethsemane, I think we see the honesty and the trust of Jesus. Here, we see that deep Trinitarian relational connection and confidence of Jesus. Right? They can both happen the same night. They can both happen in the same circumstances. Jesus is preparing for the most painful thing that could possibly happen. The most, well, the darkest hour in the history of the world. He was preparing for his crucifixion, and he prays this remarkable prayer. Judas has already left, has already gone to fetch the soldiers. He is already preparing for the trial. He is preparing for what is to come, and he prays this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Those first two statements almost seem contradictory. Right? Father, the hour has come. I am about to be crucified. I am about to be spit on and humiliated and nailed to a cross. Glorify me. It's like, we, we would think perhaps, you know, Father, uh, deliver me from that. That would be what glorification looks like. Father, you know, take me out of this situation. But he says, no, I know what is about to happen. I know how terrible it is going to be. I know the plan that you have For my crucifixion, Father, glorify me. They go together. And this language of glory is one, I think, that reflects something deep in the person and the heart of God. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is the relationship that the Father and the Son, and we can talk about the Spirit as well, even though the Spirit is not the focus of this passage. There's this mutual glorification. Is one looking to another and saying, my desire is to glorify you. Jesus lived with the confidence that he didn't need to glorify himself because the Father delighted in him. Right? We can think of those words at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We knew, he knew the love, the, the passion, the glory that the Father gave to him would not withhold from him. He had that confidence. And even at this terrible moment as Jesus is preparing to be crucified, he had, to no less a degree, that deep and abiding confidence that the one whom he was glorifying would glorify him in return. That that was the heart of the Father, to glorify the Son. And so he offers himself up in death, saying, Father, Glorify the Son as I glorify you. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's saying, everything I have done, as I have been on earth, as I have gone about teaching and healing, as I have been repeatedly, you know, in given death threats and driven out of towns and yelled at by various authorities, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. As we see everything that Jesus does, there is never a moment, never a page of Scripture in which he is not glorifying the Father. This is the relationship. I want to focus on one more verse out of that first section. Verse 5, Now, Father, 
Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does that mean? It means that the Father and the Son, as we confessed a few minutes ago in the Athanasian Creed, that they are co-eternal. There's never a time when the Son or when the Father did not exist or when the Spirit did not exist. There was never a time when they came to be and there will never be a time when they cease to be. From the very, I can't even say from the very beginning, from eternity past, the Father has glorified the Son and the Son has glorified the Father and the Spirit has glorified them both. And this mutual glorification has happened unceasingly. John puts it this way in the first chapter of his gospel. All things were made through him, Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Essentially saying, Jesus, the uncreated one, made all things. And as we read it in light of John 17, that too was an act of glorifying the Father. All things, as Jesus relates to the Father, as the Father relates to the Jesus, as they relate with the Spirit, is this mutual glorification. Okay. Some of you have already said, I am that back pew person you were talking about at the beginning. The Trinity goes over my head. I hear a little bit, and then I check out because I don't see how this relates to my life. Let's back up. Let's point out a few basic things. I want to give you, you know, some categories that will say, okay, I can understand true things about the Trinity. So first observation, God is relational. Right? It isn't the nature of God that he is relationship. We might say that friendship or family is in the nature of who God is. There was never a time where he, you know, having been a lone wolf, started to be relational. He is, in his very nature, necessarily relational. Before he created anything, God was Trinity, each person rejoicing in the others, loving the others, honoring the others, glorifying the others. This is a good thing because we are relational creatures. When God created us, he said, I'm going to make them in my image. I'm going to make them in my likeness. And part of what that means is that you and I, however much we may like TV shows about lone wolf figures, superheroes, and people who can do it on their own strength, you and I are not made that way. You and I are made to be relational. We're made to be with one another as we are right now. I think this is an incredibly appropriate sermon to preach the day after Daniel and Hope's wedding. Right, That very nature of God being one who delights in relationship, who is relational, and then seeing two people who smiled for longer than I think face muscles are supposed to hold a smile, saying they are doing the thing that God created them to do and imaging, showing what it means to be in the image of God as people who are in relationship. Second, I want to point out that God is one. This is what we, again, what we confessed a few minutes ago. We worship the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. And that language is a little, you know, maybe different than what we would usually say, the ways that we usually speak. It seems maybe a little philosophical. But if we back up, we will never look at the threeness of God, the three persons, without remembering that there is unity. There is one God. Nor will we ever look at the unity of God in such a way that ignores the trinity, the threeness of God. 
You hold them in tension in a way that, well, frankly, is difficult to speak of because it is beyond our experience. We can only say true things without grasping the whole of it. And yet we know, God has told us, this is actually one of the things that Israel regularly would have confessed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God, not three gods, one God, three persons. And the fact that God is one, again, is deeply important to how we live, to how we image him. There is no worry of division in the persons of God. There's no worry of a break in the Trinity. There is no worry of strife, of argument between the persons. Sometimes, you know, we struggle to think about the will of God because the idea of three people, but with thoughts that will never be at tension with one another, will never contradict one another. It's like, but it's that one will, it's that three will. It's, you know, gets confusing because God is mysterious and he is above us. He is beyond our understanding. And yet he is, he confesses, he tells us he is one. And so the son is not afraid of glorifying the father. He doesn't hold back from glorifying the father because he has no fear that the father will not continue to hold him in this relationship of love, of mutual glorification. There's no jealousy between the father and the son. There's no envy. There's no fear of betrayal. There's no holding back of glory because they have that unity, that oneness that is beyond our understanding. Can you imagine that love? Can you imagine knowing yourself that thoroughly loved? You know, if you are married, can you imagine... Even in the best of our marriages, there's that sense of, I trust you so deeply. Okay, to what degree? Pretty far, right? I trust you a lot. Um, do I trust you like that, though? And there's that tension we live with because God created us for that. Because when he created us good in that garden, he said, this is what you're made for. You're made for relationship, yes, but you're also made now, the man will leave his father and his wife and will go to his wife and they will be one flesh. They will be unified. They will be united. They will be one. There will be no fear of, you know, of division between them. There will be no envy, no jealousy. That is, that is what our hearts long for, I think. It's the sort of confidence that we are made to have. I think of, of therapy, essentially. Um, you know, many of us have, have been in therapy or counseling in one form or another. And one of the things that comes up frequently, um, and I know there are people in this room who, are, who do this professionally, and so I will you know, try not to put my foot in my mouth. Um, but one of the things that we struggle with are, are these two concepts. You know, relationship. Am I going to be alone? I think it's one of the great fears of the human heart that I am going to be alone or I deserve to be alone. That is something that our hearts cannot deal with because it is so contrary to the way that we are made. It's so contrary to the God that we image. God, don't let me be alone. And on the other hand, you know, the breakdown in true unity where we see the Father and the Son 
mutually glorifying, mutually honoring, and yet in a way that the Son continues to be the Son, the Father continues to be the Father, the Spirit continues to be the Spirit. Often in our own relationships, again, there's this breakdown in which one person feels, I have been obscured, I have been swallowed up, I have been you know, made less because of the person of another. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you resonate with one of those two things. I think as we think about the struggles of our hearts, often they come down to one of those two things, a breakdown in a relationship, a breakdown in oneness. And so the rest of this chapter, what Jesus does is not to continue just waxing rhapsodic and eloquent about this amazing oneness that he has with the Father. What he goes on to do for the vast majority of this chapter is say, Father, we have this amazing relationship. I want the ones you have given me to have that oneness, to have that relationship, to be one even as we are one. Okay, we're going to keep, keep looking at this. The, the rest of the passage essentially splits into two sections. First, and this is going to kind of maybe create some problems in ways that people sometimes read this section, um, the first section is not about us, okay? From, uh, say, it's six, I think, verse 6 to 19, um, Jesus is speaking specifically about the disciples who are with him. Okay? Can I make that argument to you first? Um, you know, he's speaking in the past tense. I have done this. They have believed in your name. Now, sometimes Scripture will use, you know, what we might call a future past tense, um, the tenses in Scripture are confusing and weird and not always what um, we use in English. And sometimes he'll say, you know, I have done this in a way that says, you know, essentially, I will have done this. But here, I think he is really just using the past tense. I have spoken to my disciples and they have believed you and they are here with me on the eve of my crucifixion. And also, right, this helps us to deal with the passage about Judas, the betrayer, I have not lost one other than the son of destruction. And then you start to ask questions of, wait, um, I thought, you know, if we believe in, in you know, the doctrines of grace and reformed theology, and can God lose one whom he has actually given Jesus? Um, what Jesus is saying is not on that topic, right? We don't need to import that topic onto every conversation. What he is saying is the people in this world whom he is dealing with in this place um, have believed in his name. Now, I am also not arguing against that overall doctrine. Don't hear that. Um, And it also, he's going to move in that direction because he is going to talk um, about how this extends forward. But right here, he is speaking specifically and intimately, I think, to the people who are with him which I think is helpful to see, right? Jesus looking people in the face and saying, I know you, (laughs) right? I have spent my life with you. I have eaten good meals and terrible meals with you. And I have, you know, we've walked further than we thought we were going to have to walk, going from one place to another. And there, you know, just the day-to-day things of life. God, Jesus here has lived that out with these people. And he prays for them in such a way that it just moves my heart. You know, looking at them saying, God, I love these people whom you have given me. I love Peter. I love John. I love these people whom you have given me. 
Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Right? He's looking at people whom he knows, saying, I want my joy that I have with you, Father, fulfilled in themselves. Father, we are one, and just as we are one, let them be one. Right? This is one of the ways in which, think back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. How, do, how does John begin his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those words, in the beginning, do we see those anywhere else in Scripture? We, yeah, we do. Okay, good. Genesis 1. A couple tests this morning. Right. So what's John doing? John is saying, there is this story, there is this thing that has been happening since the beginning of Genesis, right? The whole story He's consciously alluding to that at the beginning of his gospel. And by the end of the gospel, he's saying this whole story that we have been part of, that we have been telling of the brokenness that came after the fall of Israel, of the failure of Israel, all of this stuff. When we see Jesus praying, it is taking that whole story and summing up and saying all of the brokenness that has come into being, I'm about to put that away. I love that line of C.S. Lewis, right? You know, heaven is the, the place where all sad things come untrue. I think that is what Jesus is, is doing here. He's praying to the Father that, that the relational unity, the, the, the breakdown of relationship, the breakdown of unity that man had and has had since the fall, that that is going to come untrue because, Father, I and you are one. Let them be one as we are one. Okay, so I said there are two, two sections to this last part. Here is the last one, beginning at verse 20. So if, if Jesus starts by saying, Father, what is our relationship? Right? We have this Trinitarian relationship of, of unity and love and mutual glorification. And then, okay, what is my relationship to these people whom you have given me? Lord, let it be one let them be brought into that one relationship, that relationship of deep oneness. And then he goes on to say, I do not pray for these only, but what? For all those who will come to believe through them. Okay, so we're on Trinity Sunday. We're also in the season of Pentecost. As Bill and I were talking about this, you know, what, what I would preach on today we had two things. Okay, we want to hit Trinity Sunday. We want to talk about the Trinity. We also want it to be connected to this season of Pentecost um, and thinking about you know, the work, the mission of the church. Which at first may seem like, okay, there's very different and disconnected things. But actually, the Trinity is the one thing that grounds the whole mission of the church. Right, we, we read earlier, the theme verse today was the Great Commission. It's easier, I think, for me to tie those things in because I have to choose them. Um, but when Jesus gives the Great Commission, what does he tell us to do? Right, you know, go out into all the world, and the, you know, he ends by saying, and baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? The mission is Trinitarian. It is, it is bringing them into this oneness, right? 
I have brought you into this oneness, and you go by my power, by my spirit, and you're going to be a part of that. This is the amazing thing that we are called into. Often I think we, we diminish the, the missional life of the church even though we think we are capturing the very heart of the urgency, right? I mean, there is a very real sense in which you can say, you know, okay, someone is going to spend eternity in hell. Somebody is going to spend eternity away from God. That seems urgent, okay? Yes, that is urgent. And yet, when Jesus prays for what the church is going to do, that's not the angle that he primarily takes, right? We're not saying that's not true, But the primary angle that he takes here of what we are called to go out and do is not to sell fire insurance for eternity, right? It's to say there is a God who loves you, a God who is Trinitarian, who is relational in his essence, who who has love as who he is, right? Who says, you know, God is love. And we are called to go out and say there is a God who loves you, who desires to be in community with you, who desires for you to fulfill, to be, to have the whole of who you are brought into the sort of relationship that you were created for, who wants to satisfy the desires, the longings of your heart, right? We think about that great quote by St. Augustine, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is what we are called to go out and do is say, yes, I mean, we care about where you spend eternity, but more importantly, we care about who you spend it with because there is a God whom you were made for in whom all those desires of your heart are satisfied. Now, this is the part where I have to be honest as as the preacher. I think often preaching is an exercise in measured hypocrisy. Um, I have to admit that there, you know, you know, I speak probably most every sermon I, I deliver, I, I talk about, you know, we, we need to draw near to God personally, relationally, to know the love that he has for us and to not just be able to say true things about it, right? That relational closeness with God. And yet, you know, again, preaching form of measured hypocrisy. I, I also have to acknowledge before you that I need the gospel as much as any other person in this room, and that I struggle with that as much as any other person in this room, of saying, okay, in the times when my life is hard and I obviously feel that longing of my heart for wholeness, I too go and, you know, watch five episodes of Netflix sometimes. And that's, you know, on the nice side of how I deal with you know, that longing of the heart that needs to be satisfied. The Christian life, the thing that we are called to grow in, I think, is that our hearts as sinful people naturally look for their satiation, for their being satisfied in things that do not satisfy. And that even after we have been saved by Jesus, we still live in those patterns. And what God calls us into is he says, I want these people to be one even as we, Father, are one. I want them to have that relationship in which they know 
right? They know deeply, down to the bottoms of their shoes, they know where to go to be satisfied. They know that they don't need to look for for water where there is no water. They don't need to seek their, their drink from broken cisterns, is the language another writer in Scripture uses. It's to say, God, would you teach me again and again, because I'm going to need that lesson over and over. Would you teach me that what I need is that relational oneness with you? That when I am struggling, what I need is to turn to you and say, God, would you be with me as I know that you are with me? Would you satisfy me as my heart longs to be satisfied because I need you and I am created to need you and my need and my brokenness and my, well, my difficulty doing that just points to the fact that that is what I was created for. This is, yeah, I I like to include a little bit of a, a charge, a challenge in every sermon. This is what I'm calling you to do this week is, you know, probably sometime today you're going to feel that thing in your heart and say, okay, my heart is longing for something that needs to be satisfied. Just ask the question, God, how do you desire to satisfy my thirsty soul? God, how? As you have promised, right? He has said this. He has prayed this for you and I. He says, you know, I am not just praying for these people in this room. I am praying for everyone who is going to receive me through their ministry. Right? Peter, Paul, all of, all of those early apostles are our great, 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 to some ridiculous degree, spiritual grandfathers. They preached the gospel to somebody, and that guy preached the gospel to somebody. So when he says, I'm not just praying for these, I'm praying for those who will hear it through you, he is praying for us. Right? Jesus, the night before he was to be crucified, prayed for you. And the mystery of God's omnipotence and his thought is that he was capable of actually praying for you and I even in that moment. Can we draw near to that God who has said, I prayed for you and my prayers will not go unheard? Can we draw near with that confidence? Again, that Trinitarian confidence that God actually desires to, to love us. And not only that, actually, that God desires to glorify us. There's a trend um, in modern theology, I think, out of a misunderstanding of John Piper. Um, you know, John Piper talks a lot about glorifying God, which is a good thing. Um, we want to balance that by saying God is not you know, a, a vacuum cleaner of glory, <laughs> Right? He does not say, I will take all of the glory. No one else will have glory. I, I need all of the glory. God does desire that his glory would not be given to another. Because that is not the way that things will flourish. That is not the way that the world is created to be. And yet, when we look at scripture and what, what is coming for us, God actually says, I'm going to glorify you. I desire Right? As I glorify my son, I'm going to glorify you. Yeah. That longing of our heart that leads people to glorify themselves in unhealthy ways, to make a show of their wealth or of their talent or whatever it is, that God says, now I am going to glorify you and you don't know how good that's going to be. Right? I'm the one who created you knowing that I was the one who could satisfy your need 
for glory. Finally, I want to close with the very last sentence that John writes. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, the night before Jesus died, he gave a prayer, and within that prayer, he gave promises. I will continue to make it known. Uh, yeah, the, the fears that, that we have about, well, let's just say me, I, I'm preparing to plant a church and saying, you know, how, how is it that I'm going to go out and plant a church and have people come to know you, Jesus? And he says, now, I mean, yes, I'm calling you to do work, but I will continue to make my Father's name known. To every Christian, to every believer, I am going to continue to make my Father's name known to these people, to the people whom I am sending you out to reach. I am going to continue to do the work that I have been doing of making my Father's name known. I, Jesus, I will continue to make it known. The trust that we can have in Jesus is beyond what we have figured out thus far. I think that's part of the beauty of what he is calling us into. Is that the further that we put our trust in him, the further we will see how trustworthy he is.